0: Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased to have with me today Celia Fisher to tell us all about her book titled The Story of Follies, Architectures of Eccentricity, published by Reaction Books in 2023. This is an incredibly, as you might expect from the content, amusing and intriguing book and also an informative guide to understanding this strange type of building the folly Um, so I admit I definitely came in with some assumptions about oh well they're obviously always frivolous there's no practical purpose whatsoever Uh, turns out follies are much more interesting than I thought and Celia is very much the expert so Celia I'm so pleased to have you with us thank you for being here to share your expertise thank you Before we get into all things folly, however, would you mind introducing yourself a little bit to our audience and explaining why you decided to write this?
1: Well, I think the first state of my obsession was living near Kew Gardens and constantly seeing the famous pagoda and the little classical temples there and realising that Kew itself and many other historic gardens had a whole series of follies in them, built in all different styles from classical to gothic for reasons which we're going to explore. And then um, we started going, taking holidays in properties belonging to the Landmark Trust, which is an organization very close to my heart. The Landmark Trust rescues historic buildings that are special but no longer in use and turns them very carefully into holiday lets. So you can stay in a tower or a bathhouse with a freezing cold plunge pool underneath it or even a pigsty, and there is always a bookshelf there stuffed with relevant reading matter, including a history album, which is all about the folly you're staying in, its origins, its personalities, and the restoration process. So lots of odd and fascinating stories. But um, to do a little bit of introducing myself, my degrees are in history and art history And most of my previous books have been about the history of plants and gardens with a lot of art mixed in. So follies felt like a natural progression. So many of them belong in great landscape gardens. So for me, it was always history and art, but follies provided a different aspect. And the excuse for writing another book on follies, because there are some already, was to analyse them according to themes, which hadn't been done before and to explode the myth that follies can be defined as useless buildings. Because most of them did have a use, whether for eating in, or admiring a splendid view, or being an eye-catcher as part of a view or vista in the gardens, or for watching a hunt or races, or for boating, fishing, bathing, all sorts of different sports and occupations. And of course, there is the question, As you said, how do you define a folly? And really, the whole book is an attempt to answer that question because there is no glib reply. For instance, can a mausoleum or tomb be a folly if it's eccentric enough? We'll see. (laughs) Wonderful. Thank
0: you for taking us through sort of what brought you into this. And I think many of the aspects uh, about follies that I'm, of course, going to ask you more about. So on that idea, the myth, as you said, um, that follies have no purpose, you've just given us an initial list of some of the reasons you might have a folly, what you might use a folly for. Um, Could you start us off kind of, I guess, at the origins of the folly movement. I don't even know if that makes sense, but kind of the initial follies. Um, what sorts of them? those purposes were we seeing? What, what were people building
1: follies for? Well, to go right back to the beginning, you could suggest that the Tower of Babel, as described in the Bible and reimagined ever since, was the archetype of all follies. But the earliest type of buildings that would now be termed follies were garden pavilions, Known either as summer houses or banqueting houses. Not what we now mean by banquet, the word derives from the French banquette, meaning a bench, so it was more an informal part of the meal involving a stroll through the gardens and usually placed to command a lovely view. So the banquet was more like an exquisite picnic, and the illustration I used was an early Dutch still life with goblets of wine and dainty sweetmeats and fruits to summon up the atmosphere. The first banqueting house on record in England was built for Henry V, the victor of Agincourt, on an island in the river near Kenilworth, and a hundred years later, Henry VIII had one built on a mound overlooking the Thames at Hampton Court. These are long gone, but many others remain, dating from the late 16th century onwards, in National Trust properties, or other stately homes and gardens. There were two lovely examples dating from the early 17th century that remained from a house and garden that were lost during the Civil War. They're called the East and West Banqueting Houses, built in a honey-coloured cotswold stone with strapwork parapets and barley sugar finials, they're known as the Jacobean Stein. They face each other along the raised garden terrace and would have had views back to the great house itself and across the formal gardens. And the west banqueting house also looked out in the other direction over the conigree or conigarth. And cony means rabbit. And warrens where rabbits were contained in their burrows were very common because of their value for meat and fur and also for the sport of watching them being caught. Watching sport was another function of early follies, which were known as hunting lodges or towers. They became not only functional like banqueting houses, a place for entertaining and to impress one's friends with imaginative architecture inside and out. One of my favourites is King John's Hunting Lodge, which is at Odium in Hampshire. If it existed in the time of King John, it was probably just functional. But early in the 18th century, it acquired a facade with fantastic high gables in a style which was partly Dutch and partly Jacobean. And this was a political statement by the owner who belonged to the St. John family and who were Tories in disgrace because they were suspected of favouring the Stuart pretenders to the throne. So you see, the book is all about how Follies usually had a specific use or uses, as well as being little architectural gems. And I should add, that they were seldom called follies by the owners. They usually did and still do have a specific name of their own. And when I'm asked, how do you define a folly? Really, the whole book is an attempt to answer that question.
0: <laughs> well, thank you for taking us through some of those initial ones. I think, in fact, those examples give us a really good idea of why it's so hard to define it. Um, because even just saying, oh, well, it's banqueting halls. Well, that actually leaves out rather a lot. Um, so that makes kind of that idea of why do you need a whole book to define it? Well, <laughs> you've already given us a lot of ideas for why that would be tricky. Um, I'd love to stay in some senses on this kind of chronological bent for a moment, because, of course, if we're talking Elizabethan or even older, um, that's where a lot of the sort of initial things are follies. But if we're really talking about follies, We often tend to think of the 18th century, at least in Britain, that's kind of, at least in many people's minds, my own included, that's peak folly, really. Um, So why was that peak folly? Why did British aristocrats want follies or things that had specific names that they wouldn't have called follies? Why did they want them in the 18th century?
1: Well, during the 18th century in England, there were more follies than in any other nation, um, mainly because the aristocracy were intent on doing away with the more formal gardening styles and creating landscape gardens with vistas of grass and woodland across their ancestral acres. There was an economic side to this. More and more trees were needed to supply the navy as it went from strength to strength across the world. And um, the crops and livestock stock based on the land were the greatest source of wealth for the aristocracy so their money and their pride went into embellishing it. And in a lot of these 18th-century landscape gardens, you get a whole series of follies, often in different styles. There would be classical temples dedicated to a favourite god, goddess or hero, and follies in a medieval style, either towers or mock castles or ruins or hermitages. A hermitage was a favourite place of retreat for the master of the house, because in the big house, he'd be surrounded by family, servants, and visitors, so sometimes he needed to be quiet. When There'd be waterside follies over the lake, like a boathouse in some fine Italianate style or a fishing pavilion or a grotto, and then you'd need um, a folly in an exotic Oriental style, and there were lots of Turkish tents made either of canvas or more permanently of metal with bright stripes and golden swags. And of those Turkish tents that remain, there are two in Sweden, in the Royal Palace of Haga and Drottningholm, which originally housed the Palace Guard. And there's one in France in the Désert de Retz near Paris, which is, I think, their finest surviving folly garden. And in England, there's a reconstructed Turkish tent at Payne's Hill in Surrey, Hill is often considered to be the most perfect example of an 18th-century folly garden, both in terms of the hills and valleys of the landscape and the tree planting, the channeling of the water into lakes, and the varied follies of all sorts, are excellently placed to create circular walks and open up vistas from one to another. But there are landscape follies with uh, gardens with a series of follies all over England each with a different character and theme, the Star Head and Stowe in the south, Castle Howard, Wentworth Woodhouse, Studley Royal, and Hatfell, all in Yorkshire, so right from south to north. On the other hand, a lot of the most famous follies now stand as individuals, often on the tops of hills like Broadway Tower and Leith Hill, Paxton's Tower in South Wales, all of which can be seen for miles around. And in Scotland, the finest folly of all time, the pineapple, built magnificently in the form of a fruit and surviving all the tests of time and climate. What a fascinating sort of
0: collection of sort of reasons and particular follies. Um, I certainly have seen a bunch of those that you've just listed. um, And it gives a whole new idea to that kind of landscape. I'm not sure I thought of them all as follies until reading the book. so this idea of kind of they want them, they have lots of uses for them, they might even have a collection of them for different purposes on a property. Take us then through the process. You've got a British aristocrat who says, I want a folly. Um, how were the kind of specific plans for one conceived of? How is a folly designed?
1: Um, well, it was all to do um, with a cooperation, really, between um Rich aristocrats and the leading architects of the time, um, and the fascination with architecture all over Europe, which meant that leading architects didn't design the kind of garden buildings we now call follies, and they didn't think it was at all beneath them. Um, and the, it all started really with Palladio, the 16th century Italian architect um, who's most famous for his Venetian churches and his villas in the Veneto which are so lovely in their proportions, that he gave his name to the Palladian style. And um, the, uh, they created the archetype of a perfect small villa, um, which is called La Rotunda on the hillside above Vicenza. And it was based on a Roman prototype with mathematical rules of symmetry and of a circle with a dome inside a square, and then porticos and columns to Decorates the square form of the outside. And the reason it can be classified as a folly is that it wasn't for living in, but for visiting to entertain and enjoy the views over the surrounding countryside outside Vicenza. So we'd call it a summer house, really. And in England, all the leading 18th century architects designed follies for their patrons, as well as grander buildings. And you can see partnerships where the inspiration bounced off patron and architect. For instance, there was the Earl of Carlisle transforming the grounds of Castle Howard in Yorkshire with pyramid temples and avenues of statues. And he did this um, with Sir John Vanborough, a, a leading architect. And they were both members of the Kit Kat Club in London. So that's where they met and socialized with other patrons and other folly builders. And to deal with the actual mathematical side, um, Vanbrugh seems to have turned to Nicholas Hawkesmore, uh, a more technically in kind gentleman. And it was a very real partnership because Hawkesmore had the technical skills, but not the social skills, which could win an aristocratic Landover to follow the architect's way of thinking. On the other hand, the architect William Kent did have all the social skills necessary to win over his patrons to his particular brand, which was not a rustic Palladianism. First, Lord Burlington, who he met in Italy, and he went on to design the garden and follies at Chiswick House in West London. And then Lord Commam, um, also Um, used William Kent to design a series of politically-inspired follies at Stowe. And um, Kent also designed the gardens at Rousham in Oxfordshire, which are a very small but perfect example of the way Kent could harmonize um, the buildings and gardens while opening up vistas to the surrounding countryside and building some eye-catchers there. And of course, Kent was the predecessor and mentor of Capability Brown, who worked with even more famous architects like Robert Adam to adorn landscape gardens. and Capability Brown also worked extensively with Sanderson Miller, who was best known for designing ruined castles and turrets and arches to crown a vista. And Capability Brown's main rival was William Chambers who had travelled with the East India Company as a young man and set himself up to design follies in the Chinese style. And he earned royal patronage and was most famous for building the pagoda in Kew Gardens and for his books on Chinese architecture. But he too designed not only follies in all sorts of styles, but grand buildings like Somerset House in the Strand in London. And so it continued, Sir John Soren designed follies as well, especially fantastical dairies in various styles, including Islamic styles. And um, even in recent times, leading architects have designed follies like Charles Jenks in his Garden of Cosmic Speculation in Scotland, and I.M. Pei and Philip Johnson uh, in America. So um, so follies may be on the frivolous side, but they certainly employ the attentions of um, important architects.
0: Clearly, yes, that list is quite stunning of sort of who's who of people in the time period. Um, And as you mentioned, obviously, Follies were built in a lot of different styles, not just different purposes, um, but different architectural, artistic, really, styles. Um, And one that seems to come up quite a lot is, of course, classical Follies or even classical ruins to a degree. um could you maybe tell us more about kind of this particular inspiration, how sort of how follies were developed from this inspiration, and especially why 18th century follies in Britain were so inspired by stuff they saw classically in
1: Italy? Uh, well, um as I've already mentioned, um the uh, Palladio um, in the 16th century, Revived interest in classical styles and set out the principles of mathematical symmetry um, by which they could be recreated. And this fascination with antiquity and architectural proportions was also an inspiration in the foundation of Freemasonry during the 18th century, which turned into a widespread gentleman's society all over Europe, giving rise to beliefs that there was much symbolism and a spiritual dimension. In the mathematics of antiquity. And in England, um, Nicholas Hawkesmore was the most famous exponent, and his wonderful stepped pyramids continue to puzzle people. Hawksmore was the protege of Sir Christopher Wren, uh, one of the earliest Freemasons on record, who wrote important treatises on the principles of architecture. So there was this crosslink between um, the practical side of architecture and all these ideas that were current. Um, and the societies that were formed. But the reason that every aristocrat, whether he was a Freemason or not, felt he needed a classical temple in his grounds, or several, and both round and rectangular, was the Grand Tour. It was like a gap year nowadays, only more so, because sometimes it took several years, and the returning youth would bring back with him statues of the gods and goddesses and paintings of classical subjects and a head full of Roman temples and Baroque churches. So the houses these aristocrats inherited may have had a classical aspect, but to get a perfect example of classical style, untrammeled by domestic uses, you built a folly or two. And the classical references would have been appreciated by practically everyone because education was based on the classics. And probably the finest example of um, a... A classical garden is Star Head in Wiltshire, which has a circuit of classical temples in different styles all around the lake. We start with the Temple of Flora, with simple Doric columns and a Latin inscription addressed to initiates about to enter the other world. And then there's the Temple of Hercules with his statue, which is modelled on the Pantheon in Rome, but with ornate Corinthian columns and a temple of Apollo based on the Greek temple at Baalbek, which had been quite recently discovered, and a grotto in Starhead with statues of a sleeping nymph and a river god. And for decades, art historians have been arguing about whether this circuit was based on a journey to the other world, as described in Virgil's Enid, that is the travels of Aeneas from Troy to Rome. Certainly in the house at Starhead, there are paintings brought home by the banker Henry Hoare, who designed the gardens, and especially there's one by Poussin of a landscape with many temples and the priest of Apollo welcoming Aeneas to the island of Delos. So some think that's um, part of the inspiration. And paintings of landscapes like this were also a part of, of this fashion for all things classical. And they also contributed to the design of eighteenth century landscape gardens, the, the planting of the trees um, and the lawns and the lakes and the vistas. And any visitor who enjoys going around stately homes will remember seeing Capriccios, which is the Italian name for paintings stuffed full of different kinds of classical buildings, together with ruins and columns and the old pyramid. So all those things were feeding into um the 18th century um belief that classical follies were a necessary part of any garden.
0: That makes sense then, given all of those inspirations, why we have so many of them. Um, But as your answers have hinted at a bit so far, obviously, this wasn't the only style of folly going around, right? The Q Pagoda. Um, In fact, the architect whose entire kind of specialty was Chinese-inspired follies. So aside from this idea of things that look Chinese, things that come from the classics, um, where else did British Follies draw inspiration from? Well, once the
1: urge to create Follies got a grip, um, as you say, uh, many different styles were tried. Uh, the most indigenous was a medieval style, starting most famously in Yorkshire, um, partly inspired by the real ruins um, at Fountains Abbey and Real um, which would give a sense of the tracerid windows um, and the ar- pointed arches of, of um, abbeys and cathedrals. And um, in another vein, at Castle Howard, um, which used magnificent walls interspersed with bastions, um, which were built mainly by Hawksmoor's inspiration to recreate the fortifications um, of the lost castle from which Castle Howard was named. And Vanbrugh was also responsible. Um, apart from Castle Howard, um, for various hunting lodges um, in a medieval style but with Palladian proportions. Um, There's one he built for himself at Claremont in Surrey and another at Grimsthorpe in Lincolnshire. Um, And of all the 18th century architects, Sanderson Miller was the most famous for designing sham ruins with arches and castellations, which would be set impressively um, in the landscape Um, and there's one in Bath, on one of its many hills, which could once be viewed from almost everywhere in the town, including Pryor Park and the Pulteney Bridge, but now it's mostly obscured by trees. And then, um, as you said, towards the end of the 18th century, the picturesque movement grew up, rather like the present fashion, um, for more natural gardens with grass and wildflowers, and uh, the word Gothic was used to describe Uh, temples and pavilions and arches and towers, which um, evoked the whole atmosphere of the medieval past. and Again, another source of inspiration for architects um, was to look eastwards uh, and the trade in Chinese artifacts like porcelain and lacquerware and wallpaper gave uh, wonderfully evocative images of people and buildings known as chinoiseries. And from this came the pagodas and Chinese pavilions with upturned roofs and dragons, um, which appeared all over Europe. In fact, um, apart from the pagoda at Kew, one of the most famous um, is at Susi, near Berlin, um, which is a green and golden circular pavilion known as the Tea House, um, with a roof rather like a, a tent and life-size Chinese figures all around it which was created for Frederick the Great, and not to be outdone, Catherine the Great had chinoiserie follies in the grounds of her palaces in St. Petersburg with ornate Chinese bridges over the water and um, a splendid chinoiserie folly called the Creaking Pavilion, because the weather vane, which is in the form of a Chinese banner, creaks as it turns in the wind. And in England, one of the prettiest Chinese pavilions is at Bidolf Grange in Staffordshire, uh, with an arcaded bridge leading to it, and red roofs and golden dragons. And its design, interestingly, seems to be inspired by the nearby potteries, which created the blue and white willow pattern design, which is very uh, similar. And Bidolf Grange, of course, also provides its follies with an atmospheric garden um, setting with the right kind of plants and trees, Um, so you um, get that too. There were also follies in other Oriental styles, especially the Turkish tents, which I've already mentioned, and Indian styles, the most famous being Brighton Pavilion. Of course, it could be argued that a palace like that is too big to be a folly, but the Prince Regent's contemporaries certainly considered it was a folly. And then, of course, there are pyramids often connected with mausoleums and raising that question whether a tomb can be a folly. But pyramids are irresistible. They have to be included as follies, especially when there's a story of the occupant sitting inside awaiting the last judgment with a meal and a bottle of port in front of him.
0: <laughs> yes, I think the, the eccentricity aspect um, clearly is one of the defining features of what counts as a folly. Uh, and certainly some of the stories about mausoleums and tombs in the book. Yep, pretty strange. <laughs> <laughs> um, now that we have an idea of kind of the many inspirations and some of the purposes that follies might be kind of drawing from or put to use for, obviously that answer you've just given us about um, Catherine the Great kind of going, "Oh well, if you've got one, I should have one too, suggests that, you know, there's, can be an element of kind of one-upsmanship or an element of allegiance with the stonemasons. So, could you tell us a bit about how follies might be indications of the owner's political affiliations, imperial ambitions? Kind of, what does it? What can they tell us about the owner and what they believe?
1: The idea that a folly could declare your political loyalties seems to have started with the arrival of um, William the Third. Um, from Holland uh, to be King of England as a constitutional Protestant king to replace the Catholic Stuarts, who didn't have much time for parliament. Um, And some early 18th century follies in England even complemented William by being in the Dutch style, um, which led on to the European Baroque style. Um, Most notably, you can see that in a a temple dedicated to, to William at Rest Park. Um, but then, in a while, there was a reversion to styles that were considered more authentically British um, rather than European. And the word liberty was used a lot. And medieval styles arrived, inspired by um, the indigenous castles and churches, which were much easier to use in follies than, at, than in actual stately homes. So, that's another reason why follies proliferated. Um, I would say the most important series of political follies in the first half of the 18th century were created by um, or for Lord Cobham um, at Stowe. He went into opposition to Prime Minister Robert Walpole, who he considered was um, getting more and more corrupt. And in his vast landscape garden at Stowe in Buckinghamshire, some of the most idiosyncratic follies were designed by William Kent. Uh, especially there was a temple of ancient virtue in the classical style. Um, nearby a temple of modern virtue which was designed as a crumbling ruin with a headless statue which was generally believed to be of Walpole. and uh, nearby a temple of British worthies which was a strange Palladian edifice centering on a pyramid with arch niches holding busts of patriotic leaders, including Elizabeth I, Drake, and Raleigh, and writers like Shakespeare and Milton. Isaac Newton was there, and Thomas Gresham, who founded the Stock Exchange. So um, a nice survey of of what was considered important in the development of um, uh, British greatness in the 18th century. And um, the political supremacy of, of various uh, weak factions, because some um, they don't all agree with each other, just like Cobham hated Warpole. But it continued throughout the century, um, and later Lord Cobham himself um, helped to inaugurate the Gothic style, turning away from classical and Baroque archi- architecture as being too European and therefore not sufficiently democratic. And he had a marvelous Gothic edifice known as the Temple of Liberty. Um, with tracery windows and battlements and turrets, which was built in a triangle, which was not uncommon with follies um, connected with liberty, and all um, made out of red brick ironstone, which makes it look very powerful. Um, and then there were more specifically um, political follies um, of a particular moment. For instance, in 1745, um, the Hanoverian dynasty was threatened by the Stuart Rebellion, and the victory at Culloden um, was celebrated by several towers, including two in Yorkshire, where, of course, the threat was very real the Culloden Tower in Richmond, uh, in Yorkshire, and Huber Stand, which is a great black three sided tower at Wentworth Woodhouse. And then in the 1760s, um, the dangers and victories of the Seven Years' War inspired temples, including in the Royal Gardens at Kew. And at Star Head, King Alfred's Tower was added. Um, That was another triangular tower um, in the landscape already created earlier with the classical follies. But pride comes before a fall. Um, During the American War of Independence, those who espoused the cause of freedom are in sympathy with the Americans built arches and towers and mock forts, and most notably um, the Duke of Norfolk who built two at Greystock in Cumbria. One was called Fort Putnam, named after the American general, and the other Bunkers Hill, named after um, an American victory in the War of Independence. So um, all those are very specifically um, political or imperialistic in um, in their inspiration. Very much so.
0: I'd like to turn rather far away from those particular um, goals or ambitions in building a folly to another one of the themes you cover in the book um, that I must admit was perhaps the most surprising and the most amusing for me as a reader. Uh, Can you tell us why some farm buildings should pretty clearly be included
1: as follies? (laughs) Well, we tend to forget how important the land was to the aristocracy and their dependents at that time um, in the 18th century. Improved methods of growing crops and fattening livestock made landlords even keener on the potential of their land, Uh, added to which hunting was an obsessive pastime. Even Walpole, as a busy prime minister, spent as much time as possible at Houghton in Norfolk and had his portrait painted among his horses and hounds. And horses were important, not just for getting anywhere, but as status symbols and for the pleasures of riding and gambling. So it's not surprising that the ancestral acres had to be landscaped to include stables and deer pens, cattle sheds, uh, etc. And so leading architects, again, were brought in to redesign these buildings with battlements and pinnacles to look like small castles. And the most famous creator of this whimsical style was Thomas Wright, and his largest campaign of such buildings was for the Duke of Beaufort at Badminton in Gloucestershire. Um, uh, (laughs) uh, uh, There were castellated barns and cowsheds and a very fine hermitage too, uh, which may have been uh, used by Thomas Wright himself um, to act the part of a hermit, as well as tutoring the Duke's children in mathematics. And um, it's possible that that this setup was the inspiration for Tom Stoppard's play Arcadia, where the ornamental hermit um, was very much a part of that, that wonderful scenario. And, and dairies were another group of uh, farm-related buildings that led themselves to fantastic designs. Um, quite a lot of them were sort of rustic Palladian, but um, the most wonderful law is surely the, the Chinese dairy at Woburn House, um, another wonderful bit of chinoiserie. And this link between animals or follies continued into the 19th century um, with the arrival of the arts and craft style. Um, for instance, there's a wonderful hen house uh, Welsh pool in Wales, built when the fashion for ornamental fowl was at its height. And um, Queen Victoria had a, a similar building um, in Windsor Great Park, though um, it's not there anymore. Uh, and to crown all these wonderful animal related follies, um, there's the pigsty, which overlooks Robin Hood's Bay in Yorkshire, which has Ionic columns and a decorative portico painted. Um, in reds and yellows um, which for some is reminiscent of um, the palaces at Knossos in Crete uh, though some say it's more in the Etruscan style but whichever, it's um, very striking and it's really said to have housed pigs originally though now it's one of many converted by the landmark trust for people to enjoy
0: (laughs) Well, I think there's going to be people looking up how to stay over in the Pig folly uh, and what that would look like. These were fabulous examples in the book, and I think for me at least, um, that section really solidified the uh, analytical looking at this by theme to be able to put them all next to each other and be like, okay, a folly as dairy. Why? What does that look like? Um, Was quite interesting, and obviously. I think I can pretty confidently say that that kind of folly is not really something that's continued. Um, but as one of your early answers has told us a bit about, um, we do still have follies, uh, both obviously ones that have survived, but more recently people are still building follies, uh, but not ones for pigs. So how have follies changed since this peak in the 18th century?
1: Well, indeed, yes. That. Um... As I've mentioned, um, the arts and crafts style um, came to inspire a few follies. And um, then in the 20th century, as architecture became more and more experimental, so did follies. Um, in Spain, um, you get Gaudi covering whole towers with brightly colored tiles and um, moving outside Europe. Oh, which one can with follies, in Mexico, um, the uh, eccentric Englishman, Edward James, who was um, a patron of the surrealist movement in in painting, um, finally got a property in the jungle in Mexico, and there he used concrete to build pavilions um, surrounded by jungle foliage um, with stairs going up to nowhere and pillars shaped like bamboo and curving balustrades, like, like which seem to echo the tropical foliage, um, so certainly you could call those follies, and um, Oliver Eliasson, um, who's from Norway but um, works in Berlin mainly, um, builds pavilions out of glass, which is darkened and mirrored to create optical illusions as you move through them. And in the Parc de la Villette in Paris, um, Bernard Chumi built a whole series of follies out of steel painted red as an exercise in deconstruction. So they are hollowed-out cube shapes, um, rather like a frame of some former function. For instance, there's one which echoes the shape of a water wheel. By the canal, uh, there's another which um, echoes a monumental clock. And to me, uh, here in London, the serpentine pavilions, which appear each year in Hyde Park, could be called follies. They're certainly small architectural experiments, though, of course, that raises a question just how ephemeral a structure can be and still remain in the public mind as a folly. Um, assuming you can get away with it, my favourite serpentine pavilion was made out of sustainable plastic. Uh, officially known as the Selgascano Cano Pavilion, after the Spanish architects who designed it. But it was a translucent tunnel of glowing colours of plastic, um, and it gained lovely nicknames like the Rainbow Pavilion or the Glue Worm. And it did gain permanence because now uh, it's been transported to Los Angeles and has a new lease of life as an exhibition center. And Chinoiserie lives on in modern follies, thanks to the Chinese-American architect, I.M. Pei. Um, He's most famous for the glass pyramid outside the Louvre in Paris. But in China and in Wiltshire, he created octagonal pavilions out of glass and steel panels, which slowed downwards in layers uh, and imitate the outline of a small pagoda. So Shinwazuri does live on in um, modern style. Thank you for taking us through those examples. I think
0: the idea of ephemerality is a really interesting addition to our thoughts on defining follies um, and sort of what they're used for and who decides those things. Um, And sort of on that line, I was wondering if you could maybe talk a bit about this idea that What are follies for? What do they tell us? And one thing you talk about in the book is that they're, quote, indicators of passing fashions to a degree. To what extent do you think that
1: that's what follies are? Um, Some of the most interesting follies represent the fashions of their time. And perhaps that is why they can sometimes be considered frivolous. But fashion can reflect serious aspects of society as well. Um, think how the way women dress reflects their position in society. And similarly, uh, modern follies reflect the 20th century experimentation with the use of new building materials like steel, concrete and glass and the new aesthetics of proportion and space. And in the past, fashion very obviously played a part in folly building. Um, As we said, trade opened uh, Europe up to Chinese influence, and um, hence chinoiserie. And after Napoleon's invasion of Egypt and Nelson's victory at the Battle of the Nile, there was a fresh wave of interest in Egypt, and more follies included pyramids and um, were built with facades like um, Egyptian temples. And um, there was an 18th century fashion for cold plunge pools based on the belief that they were good for the health. And so bathhouses were constructed in various eye-catching Italianate or Gothic or Turkish styles. Um, And perhaps most interesting of all, as as a widespread influence, was the fashionable craze for Gothic novels um, that was initiated uh, by Horace Walpole's book, The Castle of Otranto, which was full of um, scary quartets and maidens fleeing down dark stairs and heroes coming to the rescue. And um, he put his medieval uh, fantasies and collections of armor and so on uh, into practice in his own house at Strawberry Hill in Twickenham. And if you say that a a dwelling can't really be classified as a folly, then um, let's take the little Gothic chapel in the grounds of Strawberry Hill uh, because it uh, was a retreat, not a a sanctified place, and... um, therefore can be called a folly, Um, and it was built to contain Horace Walpole's overflowing collection of stained glass, and many um, 18th century um, persons were collectors, and so other follies were also built to house collections. Um, There's one called Dinton Castle, um, which had fossils embedded in its walls, great big ammonites, and um, Beckford's Tower in Bath, um, was built to house part of his collections of paintings and books and objets d'art. And William Beckford also wrote a Gothic novel called Vatek, um, which reflected his own exotic and rather scandalous attitude to life. And um, Beckford was also famous for his first folly building, which was a huge spire at his ancestral home in Font Hill. But that fell down and he moved to Bath and built himself another tower on Lansdowne Hill, which is still there. And since it's surrounded by a fine graveyard, it too is suitably Gothic, though its architecture has classical rather than medieval proportions. And um, the building of fake ruins was another curious 18th century fashion Um, Sometimes they were in the classical style. Uh, For instance, there's one at Paines Hill and another at Kew um, called the Ruined Arch, Uh, but mostly um, they were medieval and Gothic. So again, following that um, very strong um, fashion for Gothic
0: style. I've obviously in the course of um, reading the book and in the interview, kind of already indicated which aspects of the book I found most entertaining um, and most surprising. There's really a lot to learn from this. But obviously, you are the expert. You know so much more than I ever could. Did you have a folly whose story or architecture you found especially surprising or
1: entertaining? Um, Well, there were two which are close together and closely related, which I think... um, really ticked me over in one, into wanting to know more and more about follies. Um, first, there's the triangular lodge at Rushton in Northamptonshire, which was built late in the reign of Queen Elizabeth I by Sir Thomas Tresham. And he was Catholic at a time when all Catholics were suspected of being involved in plots to assassinate the Queen. So we built this wonderful folly full of religious symbolism relating to the Trinity and his name, which begins with T-R-E-S, the Latin for three, and there are all over the building um, as little windows, triangles and trefoils, and three gables with pinnacles, each of the three sides of the building, which are also triangular, and it's built of layers of pale stone and terracotta bricks, which give it a, a beautiful striped effect. And inside, the atmosphere is so quiet and numinous that it's hard not to believe that it was really a secret chapel. Um, It's always said to be linked by a tunnel to the big house, which is now a hotel, so that a priest would come and go in secret. But it was called the Warrener's Lodge because that's where the estate rabbits were kept all around it. Their rabbit holes were in the banks and the Warrener who lived there Processed their meat and skins for market. And there are surviving records showing um, that uh, Rushton uh, supplied the London market with many uh, rabbits and skins. And um, after creating this wonderful triangular lodge, a little later, Thomas Tresham built a folly at his other property called Leavedon New Beald. And this was supposedly intended as a banqueting house right up on the hill, commanding a view. Um, over the forests all around. Um, And that was built in the shape of a cross and the outside was decorated with symbols of Christ's crucifixion. But it has no roof and it never did have one because Thomas died in 1605 before it was finished and his son and heir was implicated in the gunpowder plot to blow up Parliament when James I was visiting So you see how follies can reflect the history of their times in dramatic ways and at dangerous moments. Um, And, and, well, I know I'm cheating and saying more than one, but the other sensational folly in this category is the pineapple in Scotland, um, which was built by the last English governor of Virginia who fought, uh, well, I should say Scottish governor of Virginia, of course, who fought um, off the American rebels for a year before retreating home. And it was then that he added this amazing um, top uh, of to his summer house, which had existed before, um, an architecturally perfect pineapple, uh, which of course was a symbol of welcome and hospitality in America and uh, became one here too.
0: I'm quite glad you added that one in because um, that is, I admit, one of the follies that when reading the book I had to take pictures of and send to various people going oh my god can you imagine a folly like this Uh, it's quite striking really (laughs) that then takes me i think listeners at this point are going to be quite intrigued about what follies might be near them or um on the way to their next holiday or trip so if listeners were to visit only one or two or maybe three follies um discussed in your book which few would you recommend to them
1: well, I think I'm going to evade your question slightly by saying that I would recommend visiting a folly near you where you live, um, because almost anywhere and there will be one. Um, the whole country, England, Scotland, Wales, and Ireland, are bristling with follies. Um, uh, but I must admit that some of them, um, the most atmospheric ones, are rather hidden away in woods or down long lanes. Um, and perhaps as well as my book, um, you might want to arm yourself with a, a folly gazetteer. Um, There's a very fine one by Gwyn Hedley and Wim Camp, which is called Follies, Grottos and Garden Buildings. And um, it covers the subject county by county, um, though not Ireland and Europe. Um, but to get the full folly experience, it's probably best to visit a landscape garden um, as I've been describing, with a whole series of follies. There's plenty of them all over the place. Um, in the south, for instance, Kew Gardens or Payne's Hill, in southeast and further west, Starhead, West Wickham, Stowe or Rousham, and going into the Midlands, Risp Park, Coombe Park, uh, Shugborough or Bidolf Grange, and arguably the finest collection of all um, is in Yorkshire. Um, Castle Howard, which I've mentioned, Wentworth Woodhouse, Real Vaux, uh, Studley Royal, which I should perhaps mention more. Um, and the search never ends. Um, all I can say now is to wish you happy folly hunting. <laughs> well, on
0: that lovely note, I'll remind listeners that the book we've been discussing is titled The Story of Follies, Architectures of Eccentricity. Celia, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast.
1: Oh, thank you very much for for listening to all that.